You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome! We're back at it today with another riotous and raucous and very exciting episode for you. It has been a hot minute since I posted an episode, partially because it's really nice out and I want to spend pretty much all my time outside instead of in my bedroom recording and editing. So I haven't been. Well, more specifically, I've been recording a bunch of stuff, but haven't gone back and edited it. So I've got this lovely little backlog that I am trying to catch up on, and that brings us to today. So some brief orientation if you're new to the podcast. First off, welcome. Um, Most of the skills I reference in this podcast are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is the therapy that I'm currently in, therapy that I've done previously, and overall my therapy of choice. Um, It's really effective for the way I think and for the issues that I'm dealing with, so that's my favorite these days. Uh, The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in the PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy if you would like to follow along. And I won't ever reference something in the DBT manual without providing an explanation and actually reading what it says. I'm not assuming that anyone else has any like baseline knowledge about DBT. So whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual, or really whenever I'm quoting anyone else's work other than my own, I will turn on a reverb sound effect. So I sound like I'm at the Taj Mahal, or more accurately, a Taj Mahal bathroom. But that would be your signal that I am reading something. Now, the bulk of this episode was recorded on March 17th, 2022. And this commentary was recorded on August 2nd, 
2022, so four and a half months later. What is today's episode about? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, The recording you're about to hear is me dealing with some pretty intense self-destruction urges after doing my exposure therapy for the day. What is exposure therapy, you ask? Allow me to explain. So I'm doing a DBTPE, which stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy Prolonged Exposure. Very, very simply put, I have chronic PTSD. And the reason it is chronic, it persists, is because of two main factors, problematic beliefs and avoidance. I believe something is unsafe, so I avoid it. By avoiding it, I'm training my brain that it's scary, so I believe even more strongly that it's unsafe, so I avoid it even more. It creates this kind of endless cycle. And exposure involves me interacting with memories that I avoid and with situations that are objectively safe that I also avoid. And in doing so, I'm training my brain that I'm safe. Uh, The prolonged part of prolonged exposure refers to how long I'm in the therapy for. So far, it's been four and a half months doing it every day for about an hour to an hour and a half. I'm anticipating that I'll be doing this type of therapy for at least a year. I did it before in 2017 for, I think, eight months. Uh, The actual nuts and bolts, like when I say doing it, what I mean is that there are two main pieces exposure to memories that I've avoided and exposure to situations that I've avoided. And so exposure to memories involve me recording me telling in as much detail as I can remember about a painful memory, a traumatic memory. And then when I do my exposure every day, I listen back to that recording. When I'm doing exposure to situations that I'm avoiding, I'm actually doing the things that I avoid. Right now, that involves... (laughs) Right now, that involves applying for jobs. In the past, like back around the time that this uh, recording was made, I was doing exposure to an interview with Harvey Weinstein's lawyer, where she mentions that she's never been sexually assaulted because she would never put herself in that position. So I got to listen to that every day. And yeah, so I do my exposure practice an hour to an hour and a half a day. And it's fucking rough. And it doesn't really get easier. Because as a memory becomes less charged, as a task becomes less charged, we level up. (laughs) My therapist and I level up to the next thing. And so I'm constantly at the far limit of what my body can tolerate. And the idea is to stretch what my body can tolerate and tolerate distress and build resilience and a whole host of other things. So in the recording you're about to hear, I am struggling with some pretty intense urges after doing exposure for the day. And they're really intense when the recording starts. And then I move through them and process what I'm feeling. And uh, yeah, I don't end up in the same place that I started. How, you ask? Well, let me show you. Take it away, past joy. All right, so here's what's going on. The day before January, some might even call that 
New Year's Eve and or December 31st, uh, I ran into three dudes at the gym after not seeing anybody that I knew at the gym for the entirety of the pandemic, at least two years. Um, I ran into three people, three guys on the same day who came up and talked to me. And they're people that I know from the outside world, not just the gym. And one of them asked for my number. I gave it to him. We've been texting. Well, rather, he's been texting me and I have been responding. And something happened today. So I'm on a, a strict no dating apps, no hookups regimen while I'm doing exposure therapy because I use sex to dissociate. And that's not helpful. During exposure, I need to actually be feeling all of my feelings and not dissociating from them. And then along comes this fellow. I can't tell if he's flirting with me or not. I have a horrible radar for that. I was talking to a friend of mine about it, and they asked what makes me think that he's flirting. And I was like, I have no idea. The fact that he's messaging me, I guess, at all, that will go like several weeks and then he'll message me, hey, how you doing? And I don't know, I could be reading it completely wrong. And and if he is flirting with me, does my responding to him send him the wrong message? I don't know if I should cut things off to be on the safe side. And it also feels super presumptuous to be all like, hey, I'm not going to sleep with you, so peace. <laughs> Reading over our text exchange from today, I feel sick to my stomach. I'm fairly light and kind of joking in how I communicate via text. I use a lot of sarcasm. I don't know if that sends him the wrong message, if he thinks I'm flirting with him. And I've been trying to access my wise mind around it. And all I hear is my trauma screaming at me. On the one hand, my PTSD is all, yeah, cut him off. It's safer that way. Let's not look for any nuance or anything else. Let's just swing the pendulum all the way to one side. And then on the other hand, my PTSD is all like, but you like the attention. And it's a nice way to check out mentally because like I'll dissociate even while texting. And on the third hand, because apparently my PTSD has three hands, my PTSD is all like, you should keep talking to him and give him the opportunity to be gross so that he can confirm your worldview that cishet men are dangerous. And clearly there's some work I need to do around trusting myself because it feels like trusting an alcoholic to put the drink down. I'm going to practice some observe right now. I watched myself today. He had texted me two days ago and I didn't respond until today. And I watched myself start to have that pull, almost feels like a magnetic tug towards self-destruction. And that's when I texted him back. So clearly I'm using it as a coping mechanism of some kind. Back in 2015, I got on Tinder and for the next two years, I had a lot of sex with a lot of people. Met up with dudes in kind of gross hotels and motels. And had a lot of no-strings-attached sex. And I remember what it felt like in my body to 
get on those apps. Well, to first have the urge to get on them and then to do it and then to meet up with someone. It took me a while to realize that it was a pull towards dissociation. Even messaging on the app would have me dissociate. And like a robot, I would leave my house at like 11 at night and drive to meet them somewhere and we'd have sex that I would dissociate during. And then I would leave and come home. And dissociating was a way to survive while I was waiting it out until I could leave and come home. Because leaving and going home was the point. It's the thing I didn't get to do during my first rape as an adult. So it was some form of trauma repetition where I got to change the outcome. And today, that pull was really, really strong. It still is really, really strong. It feels like I'm standing in a suit of armor next to a magnet. <laughs> There's oblivion there, that dissociation. It feels good because it feels better than hurting because it feels like nothing. And I don't have to use any of my tools to hold myself together and be skillful. I can just let everything go. And I don't understand this urge to self-destruct. That's not entirely true. I'm practicing mindfulness to current thoughts right now. And I know, well, I just heard a thought. I became aware of a thought. I just had a thought. How about that? I use self-destruction as a way to communicate to myself that what I'm going through is real and that it matters and that it hurts and that it's hard. It's like self-harming. I mean, fuck, it is self-harming. Having random sex with strangers that I don't know and I haven't, haven't vetted in any way, shape, or form is dangerous. It was dangerous for me. And I wasn't interested in vetting them. I was just interested in checking out feels really good. It feels like nothing. And they never noticed. I remember the first partner I had who did notice when it happened, when I dissociated, he said I just looked totally vacant. Um, my eyes went from like focusing on him or focusing on anything to having kind of that thousand yard stare. Like all of the life went out of my face. And it was amazing to me that it took many years to finally find somebody who actually noticed when that happened. And it was concerning the number of partners I had who didn't care or didn't pay attention to whether I was actually mentally in the room with them, which is possibly having, having a, an expectation of them that they couldn't possibly fill. If I wasn't even aware of what was going on in myself, how could anybody else possibly be? I don't understand this urge to self-destruct. So I have a starting point. I remembered one of the after effects or echoes of shame. This is emotion regulation handout six. It says, engaging in distracting impulsive behaviors to divert your mind or attention. I don't know what the fuck is happening here. Okay, here's an article about self-destruction and why we do it. Psychology Today. Self-destructive or dysregulated behavior provide relief or even pleasure in the short term, but ultimately get in the way of living a life that feels satisfying and fulfilling. 
These behaviors can include alcohol or drug abuse, binge eating, compulsive computer gaming, self-injury, smoking, chronic avoidance, or a host of other behaviors that feel helpful in the moment, but harmful over time. People who struggle with dysregulated behaviors can differ dramatically, but tend to share some common traits. The following description is oversimplified. It might not fully apply to you, but it provides a general idea. If you struggle with dysregulated behaviors, you probably were born with a tendency to feel emotions a little more strongly than other people do. This is not a negative trait. In fact, you are likely to be more creative and or empathic. Unfortunately, you may, you may have grown up in an adverse or invalidating environment. Fuck the universe. Adverse environments may include extreme experiences such as physical abuse, neglect, or continuous criticism. Routine experiences with family members who discourage expression of emotions or use dysregulated behaviors to cope with their own emotions. Experiences outside the home such as bullying at school, abuse by another caretaker, routinely being excluded by other children, etc. If you were born with the tendency to feel strong emotion and you were routinely put in situations that would be emotionally painful for anyone, then the pain probably started to feel unbearable at times. Chances are high that you eventually tried to turn off the pain. At first, you may have told yourself, I'm just doing it to try not to feel, or I'm just not going to think about it. But over time, you probably felt like you needed additional help with turning off painful emotions, and so you resorted to one or more dysregulated behaviors. These behaviors can seem so effective in the short term that you might... Ah, fuck. That's the kicker. These behaviors can seem so effective in the short term that you might have never learned adaptive ways to handle negative emotions. In addition, using a dysregulated behavior to turn off uncomfortable emotions is like putting an airtight lid on a pot of boiling water. Uh, the emotions are still there, just like the boiling water and steam. The behavior provides relief for a short time, but the emotions keep building, just like the steam and pressure keep building in the covered pot. Eventually, you may feel as though you are almost always under pressure. If the emotions are never experienced or processed, if none of the steam is released from the pot, the pressure will keep building until the pot eventually explodes. The emotions, in other words, will feel especially unbearable. And as a result, you may try even harder not to feel the emotions, possibly by engaging in the dysregulated behavior, putting the lid back on the pot. If so, you will feel relief for a short time, but the pressure will almost always start building again, and the cycle will likely repeat and repeat. That feeling of lack of control can seem depressing, scary, and hopeless. It may also lead you to decide that something about you is inherently wrong. However, if you only know one primary method of reliably stopping pain or discomfort, it makes sense that you will have strong urges to engage in that behavior when experiencing pain or discomfort, or cravings, which can feel painful and uncomfortable. It also makes sense that you will have extreme difficulty stopping the behavior. Remember that struggling with self-destructive or dysregulated behavior does not mean you are weak or selfish or that something about you is inherently wrong. Upcoming posts will provide further research consistent explanations about why you may find certain behaviors to seem impossible to resist, and will discuss methods that can help you overcome these behaviors and move towards a life that feels more fulfilling. None of these methods are quick fixes. Moving past dysregulated behaviors is often extremely difficult and painful. However, methods exist that can improve the odds. Okay, so here's what I got from all of this. When all I have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I didn't learn how to regulate emotions as a child and was chronically invalidated. 
And so I never learned adaptive ways to handle negative emotions. And so I started just throwing various shit at my emotions to see what would stick, which is a pasta metaphor that seems apt, given that we're talking about pots of boiling water. And I learned very quickly that two things were extremely effective in the short term at shutting off emotions. Both were forms of self-harm. Actual cutting, and then anonymous hookups with strangers. And just to be clear real quick here, I am not slut-shaming. I don't think there's anything wrong with having one-night stands. I don't think there's anything wrong with having sex with strangers. The way I did it was a problem because I was using that to dissociate. And I was not prioritizing my safety. I think that there are ways to mitigate risk while online dating. There's no way to prevent risk, clearly. But there's definitely ways to mitigate it, and I was not doing any of those because I didn't care about keeping myself safe. Which is why, for me, it was a form of self-harm. So... I tried both of those things, and they were really fucking effective at turning off my emotions and making the pain stop, and giving me the illusion of control, which helped the pain stop, because part of what caused the pain was feeling so out of control. I fucking hate this. I'm having the thought again that I'm invisible, that being skillful will make me invisible. I'm having the thought that using skills will make my pain invisible. Let's huff some sweet orange essential oil, shall we? God, that smells good. I'm just opening the bottle and sticking it right underneath my nose. And it always smells really strong initially once I take the lid off because there's all those vapors in the bottle that have been volatilizing while it's sitting here. I take the lid off, all those vapors come out, but then the vapors are gone. They're in the room now. And so it doesn't smell as strong. So I have to close it and give it time. <sighs> A little chemistry corner there for you. <sighs> okay, so my self-destruction makes sense. And here's the problem with it. It's a shortcut that doesn't actually get me to where I want to go. It's not actually a shortcut then, because shortcuts are a shorter way of getting to your destination. If it takes you to a totally different place, here's the thing, it is the illusion of a shortcut. That's what it is. Self-harm is an illusion of a shortcut. I think I can get to the place I want to be, which is having less pain, by doing that behavior. And while it does reduce the pain, it's not reducing it long-term. Is reducing it short-term. And I do want it to be reduced short-term. But like my bigger goal is that it reduces long-term. And that shortcut actually is taking me further away from that long-term reduction of hurt, of pain. But in the moment, it feels really good. And over time, over many, many years, I trained my brain to, when I felt distress, to go, hey, we have a thing that'll fix this right away. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? Let's do it. And it short-circuited my ability to find other tools. This is the problem with self-harm. It's addictive. It's where my brain goes now. 
I self-harmed regularly and it was, and by regularly, I mean anywhere between once a month all the way down to three or four times a week for two years. And then by self-harm, I mean, I cut for two years. No, longer than that. Three years. And then I was on dating apps for two and a half years. They overlapped a little bit. And that was a long time that I was training my brain that I couldn't feel those painful emotions. I couldn't sit with them. They were unbearable. I was training my brain that they were unbearable. And that the way to avoid the pain was to self-harm. So I'm purposefully choosing not to call myself weak or stupid or whatever. My behavior made sense. It was trying to do something for me. It was trying to reduce my pain. And it created ruts. We love our ruts, don't we? Um, if you're new to the podcast, I like to talk about the Oregon Trail wheel ruts from wagons going over the same spot over and over and over again. And these are like grooves in the earth that are still there 200 years later. So clearly I created patterns of thought, ways that my brain will think when left to its own devices or when I am vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean, I literally mean open to attack. Like when I don't have enough sleep, when I'm stressed, when I haven't eaten enough or, you know, taken my meds or, oh fuck. (laughs) Yep. Look at that. I forgot to take my meds this morning. Well, that explains some things. God damn it. Normally when I take my evening meds, I have a like a weekly pill case thing. I'll take my evening meds, and when I do that, I also grab my morning meds, and I throw them in the middle of my room. Like, I throw the case in the middle of my room so that when I get out of bed in the morning, I have to walk around it, and I notice it, and I take them. And I didn't do that last night, because I also forgot to take my night meds last night. What the fuck happened? Yeah, like, 2.30 rolled around? And I wasn't tired. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So I was up till four. So we've got some vulnerability factors running right now. And I'm really fucking annoyed about it. And I don't know why I forgot to take my night meds last night. I hardly, hardly, hardly ever do that. Like maybe three times a year will I do that. I'm really annoyed about this. Well, clearly there's some vulnerability factors running. Because I... I did take my night meds last night, but several hours late, so I didn't get a lot of sleep and then forgot my morning meds. Awesome. So, what I'm getting from this Psychology Today article, and honestly, I feel a little weird 
quoting from Psychology Today. I don't know enough about the source. Like, I know it's a widely reputable source, but kind of in the way that, like, I don't know, People Magazine is. Like, it's pop psychology, popular psychology. And I'm positive that there is racism and sexism kind of built into, um, well, there's definitely both of those things built into psychology as a study. So, yeah, I feel weird just referencing it. And there's some validation here. These behaviors can seem so effective in the short term that you might have never learned adaptive ways to handle negative emotions. That is the problem. The reason they're self-destructive. I don't know if this is a, an urban legend or if this is actual research. The story of female rats and male rats were put in cages where they were given the option to eat, drink, or push a button that stimulated a part of their brain that made it feel like they were having an orgasm. And the female rats would push the button and then go eat something or drink something and sleep and, you know, go about their business. And then they'd come back and they'd push the button again and they'd eat and drink. And it was balanced to some extent. And the male rats only pushed the button and they starved to death. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, if that actually happened. And I'm referencing it because the problem with these behaviors is they actually get in the way of me doing other more effective things, like how pushing that button, like inherently there's nothing wrong with pushing that button. Pushing the button becomes a problem when those rats do it instead of doing other things that would keep them alive and healthy. So like my urge to self-destruct isn't inherently a problem for that matter. Any urge is not inherently a problem. The behavior is the thing that's the problem. So the urge to self-destruct is not the problem. The behavior of self-destruction is the problem because those behaviors get in the way of me doing things that would actually be adaptive in the long term. (laughs) They're that fucking instant gratification button. But there's something else and I can't put my finger on it and it's annoying me. Like there are other things that that give me like instant relief. Going to the gym, for example, actually eating ice cream or really any sugar. But there's something very specific. I want to self-destruct. It's not that I want to do X behavior and X behavior happens to be self-destructive. My goal actually is self-destruction. So we're going to practice something because I figure we might as well try. I've talked about wise mind before, and wise mind is one of the states of mind listed in the DBT manual. This is mindfulness handout three. There are three states of mind. In the DBT manual, it says reasonable mind. I think that's bullshit. I have some judgment around it. Like, it's good to be reasonable, and it's bad to be emotional. Um, So rather than using that word, I prefer calling it computing or thinking mind. And that happens in our prefrontal cortex. And then you've got the emotion mind, which happens in our limbic system. And in the DBT manual, wise mind is the intersection of those two things. If it's a Venn diagram of two circles, emotion mind and thinking mind, wise mind is the intersection of those two. I also don't like that. Um, My first DBT instructor, Bob Gettle, um, preferred to picture wise mind as 
a circle that goes around both computing and emotion mind. So if computing mind is a Cheerio in a bowl of milk and emotion mind is a Cheerio, then wise mind is the bowl. And there's a reason for that because we'll get into it momentarily. So quick refresher, what those different states are. Thinking mind is cool, quote unquote, rational, task focused. Um, When you're in thinking mind, you are ruled by facts, reason, logic, and pragmatics. Values and feelings are not important. And how I can tell that I'm in thinking mind is when I am problem solving, I'm getting stuff done, I'm focused, I'm judging. Judging is very thinking mind. I'm insistent. I'm making meaning. I'm adding meaning to things. I'm interpreting. I'm task-oriented, frantic, controlling, very black and white. And I'm ignoring feelings. And then you've got emotion mind. Emotion mind is hot, mood-dependent, emotion-focused. Go figure. (laughs) When in emotion mind, you are ruled by your moods, feelings, and urges to do or say things... Facts, reason, and logic are not important. And how I can tell I'm in emotion mind, uh, it's very extreme or manic. I'm having extreme or manic emotions like anger, sadness, fear, hurt, happiness, love, euphoria, anticipation, hope. I'm also very reactive. I feel out of control. There's a sense of desperation or urgency. It's very black and white. I'm assigning blame. I'm mind reading, I'm overgeneralizing, I'm catastrophizing. And there's nothing wrong with either of those states of mind, thinking mind or emotion mind. It's very useful for humans to think because we're not that tough, fast, or strong. (laughs) So thinking is important. And it's very useful to have emotions because emotions promote action. They were our first Wi-Fi They're how we communicated with others in our species before we even had language. We could communicate with emotions. So both of those things are useful. Becomes a problem when we're in one to the exclusion of the other, which is where wise mind comes in. So wise mind is the wisdom within each person. It's seeing the value of both reason or thinking and emotion brings the left and right brain together. It's the middle path. And kind of my own thoughts on wise mind is it's validating. It's dialectic. It's holding both and instead of either or. It considers the long and the short term. And wise mind is when I'm using all of my thinking and all of my emotions. Like I'm considering all of both of those, which is why um, that... Venn diagram depicting wise mind as the intersection of thinking and emotion mind feels inadequate and why I prefer wise mind to be depicted as a circle that goes around both thinking and emotion mind because why would you exclude part of your thinking or part of your emotion? Use all of it. Honor all of it. Wise mind is a tool for saying what's real and true and I can tell when I'm in wise mind When I can see my machinery running, when I have perspective, when I'm effective, and I'm considering the short and long term, I'm balanced, flexible, calm, I'm 
accepting. I am dialectic, holding the, that both and, and I am seeing in gray rather than in black and white. So ultimately, wise mind is a tool for seeing what is real, what is actually true. This brings us to our ultimate question of how to get into wise mind right now, because my self-destruction urges are really high. And as I messaged my therapist, let's see, what did I say? It was brilliant. I mentioned that this fellow texted me two days ago and I didn't respond. And then I watched myself start to jones, (laughs) like I'm jonesing for it, for self-destruction. And that's when I texted him back today. I said that there's some work I need to do around trusting myself because right now it feels like trusting an alcoholic to put a drink down. My question to my therapist, like my request of my therapist was asking for some support in understanding why I have these self-destruction urges. And two, I don't know how to access my, my wise mind around this. Because like I said earlier, <laughs> I have three different versions, three different hands of my PTSD talking to me. On the one hand, it's like, yeah, cut him out. Like, stop talking to him, full stop. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but you like the attention. It's a nice way to check out mentally and stop feeling the pain of exposure right now. And then the third hand, like, yeah, keep talking to him because eventually he'll have an opportunity to be gross and confirm your worldview that cishet men are dangerous. None of those are wise mind. All of those are PTSD talking. And I'm struggling to access wise mind. So I figured I could do some practicing to access wise mind. So this is mindfulness handout 3A. Mindfulness. What is mindfulness? What should I put on my Barbara Walters glasses here? I don't think she wore glasses, but at any rate, mindfulness is mind training, like weightlifting. And we all have a mythology around mindfulness or meditation that we shouldn't have thoughts while we're practicing mindfulness or meditation. But thoughts are not the problem. Our judgments around the thoughts are the problem. And we're always going to have thoughts because that's what our brain does. Just like our heart beats. Like our heart beats because that's what the heart does. Our brain thinks because that's what the brain does. It doesn't necessarily mean that those thoughts are accurate or constructive. So... Mindfulness, again, is mind training, and it's not avoiding having thoughts. It's having those thoughts and then bringing the mind back, and that is like doing reps of weightlifting. Like, you don't just curl your bicep with nothing in your hand. In order to build muscle, you need resistance. You need something that's heavy, and the weight is the point. Like, you can't do weightlifting without weight. And mindfulness, you can't practice mindfulness without your mind wandering, because bringing your mind back is the point. So there's a bunch of different examples for how to practice wise mind on mindfulness handout 3A. In fact, it is titled Ideas for Practicing Wise Mind, because Marshall Linehan is nothing if not obvious. Just kind of an introduction here at the top of the handout. The mindfulness skills often require a lot of practice. As with any new skill, it is important to first practice when you don't need the skill. If you practice in easier situations, the skill will become automatic and you'll have the skill when you need it. Practice with your eyes closed and with your eyes open. That's actually really important. 
because there are times when I have needed to practice mindfulness, like in the middle of a meeting or while driving. And there are certain activities, including driving, that I should not do with my eyes closed. So some examples for practicing wise mind here. One, stone flake on the lake. Two, walking down spiral stairs. Three, breathing wise in and mind out. So like thinking the word wise while breathing in, thinking the word mind while exhaling. Four, asking wise mind a question. Five, asking is this wise mind? Six, attending to your breath coming in and out. Let your attention settle into your center. Seven, expanding awareness. Eight, dropping into the pauses between inhaling and exhaling. So those are like just the titles of each of those. And then there's bullet points underneath each one for exactly how to do that. I am going to do the asking wise mind a question because I have judgments around my self-destruction urges. Clearly, I'm judging them. And I think those judgments are trying to keep me safe. It's like, why would you want to do that? How about we not do that? That's stupid. That's not going to get you anywhere. So I have judgments. And I think asking wise mind a question, the question being, hey, what does self-destruction do for me? Might allow me to validate my self-destruction urges a little bit more effectively. So I'm going to read the entirety of what is involved in this example here. Asking wise mind a question. That's example number four. Breathing in, silently ask wise mind a question. Breathing out, listen for the answer. Listen, but do not give yourself the answer. Do not tell yourself the answer. Listen for it. Continue asking on each in-breath for some time. If no answer comes, try again another time. So I'm going to sit and do that and ask the question on my inhale and listen on my exhale. So it's going to be quiet for a while. Depending on how long this takes, I may cut out some of the some of the silence so that you're not sitting there listening to nothing for 12 minutes, but I'm going to do it and see how it goes. So on my inhale, I'm asking, what does self-destruction do for me? How about this? Actually, what is self-destruction trying to do for me? And here was a 10-second moment of silence while I was thinking. It's not terribly interesting to listen to, so I cut it out and I'm telling you that it was there. And while I'm doing this, I'm sitting cross-legged in my on my bed. I have my hands kind of in willing hands position, palms up, just like relaxed um, on the bed on either side of my legs, sitting up tall with my eyes closed. And here was a 60-second moment of silence while I was thinking. It's not terribly interesting to listen to, so I cut it out and I'm telling you that it was there. So I'm struggling with my mind wandering here. I have an easier time on the inhales when I'm actively thinking a thought. It's harder when I'm listening because I, my brain is thinking while I'm listening and it's just throwing thoughts at me. So we're going to just keep trying and sit here for a bit. What is self-destruction trying to do for me? And here was a 90-second moment of silence while I was thinking. I got nothing. Which isn't to say that an answer won't come eventually. It's just not coming right now. 
On the plus side, my urges have gone down in the process of doing this, so I guess that's something. <laughs> and now I feel sad. I'm just noticing strong sadness come up. And thoughts of that I'm alone in this, that I'm isolated. I've noticed, I mean, I know that I've mentioned that in previous episodes that doing exposure feels really, really, really super isolating because I'm doing exposure to my specific experience. And because, because the sources of my trauma, in this case, traumatic invalidation, are um, unique to me. Like, even if my sisters were in the room with me and my dad said a thing to all three of us, they may not have the same experience that I have. So, like, it feels very, very isolating. I wonder if even for, like, mass trauma events, you know, like 9-11 or the Titanic, other things where a bunch of people kind of go through similar things, if it still is super isolating. Because if trauma is my body's response to an event, well, then my trauma is going to be different from somebody else's trauma. Because my body is different from somebody else's body. And the thoughts I have, the urges I have, the emotions that come up, all of those things will be specific to me and will be caused by all of my vulnerability factors, my history, my context, my experiences, my belief system, my past traumas, all of it. So I wonder if that's just kind of the nature of trauma is to feel isolated in it. There is, ooh, 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 fun, a fantastic, fantastic post posted by somebody, <laughs> as posts tend to be, that I love. Hang on, let me find this here. Ah, here we go. God, this is so good. I don't know what platform this was originally on, but the user's name is Hobbits, A-A-R-E-B-A-S. Hobbits, A-R-B-A-Z? I don't know. At any rate. They say, as a therapist, let me just say, almost every trauma survivor I've ever had has at some point said, but I didn't have it as bad as some people, and then talked about how other types of trauma are worse. Even my most traumatized, most abused, most psychologically injured clients say this. The ones who were cheated on, abandoned, and neglected say this. The ones who were in dangerous accidents, disasters say this. The ones who were horrifyingly sexually abused say this. The ones who were brutally beaten say this. The ones who were psychologically tortured for decades say this. What does that tell you? That one of the typical side effects of trauma is to make you believe that you are unworthy of care. Don't buy into it because it's nonsense. It doesn't matter if someone else had it, quote, worse. Every person who experiences a trauma deserves to get the attention and care they need to heal from it. Because <sighs> they said that, what does this tell you? That one of the typical side effects of trauma is to make you believe that you're unworthy of care. I think another typical side effect of trauma has got to be isolation. The belief that you're the only one and that no one else could possibly understand. And I get so annoyed when I choose to use a dialectic. <sighs> I'm like, way to be skillful, you motherfucker. It's a both and, Right. Because everybody's trauma is unique and is specific to that person. And if trauma is our body's response to it, 
then of course, everybody's body's response to a thing will be different. And in that way, every trauma is unique. And, and this is the dialectic, it's a both and, and there are similarities kind of across the board in how our bodies and our brains respond to traumatic stress, which is why it's been really, really helpful for me to have friends who have also experienced trauma, especially friends who've experienced sexual abuse, because they're similar experiences, ways that we can support and validate each other. Because it's like, hey, me too. Which is why me too exists. Because Tarana Burke is a badass and understands that the antidote for shame is me too. Having somebody else say, oh yeah, I totally have that experience. So it's nice to be reminded that even though I feel really, 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 really fucking isolated, that there are aspects of my experience that are shared. So I want to read now, just kind of in closing... This is a quote from, I'm going to mispronounce this, Idioma Umabinio, U-M-E-B-I-N-Y-U-O. Three rules to healing. One, you must let the pain visit. Two, you must allow it to teach you. Three, you must not allow it to overstay. Anywho, I'm going to throw this on back to future joy to make some sense of this clusterfuck take it away future joy welcome back to the future or present day or whatever so uh, a couple things to note one is that i mentioned uh, earlier on in the recording you just heard about the wise mind venn diagram that is in the DBT manual that shows emotion mind, thinking mind, and the overlap of those two being wise mind. I have a version that I prefer. It is linked in the description and is on the website. So I kind of petered off there at the end of the recording you just heard and really wasn't all that successful at trying out the asking wise mind a question skill that I did at the end. But strangely enough, I had already asked my wise mind a question earlier in the episode and actually answered it with a pretty significant realization that I didn't even notice when it happened. It was only upon listening back to it that I heard it and I was like, oh my God, that's fucking huge. Did you catch it when it happened? Because I had to listen to it twice (laughs) to catch it. (laughs) I had just taken a big whiff of my essential oils to ground myself in my body and then I said this. Okay, so my self-destruction makes sense. And here's the problem with it. It's a shortcut that doesn't actually get me to where I want to go. It's not actually a shortcut then, because shortcuts are a shorter way of getting to your destination. If it takes you to a totally different place, here's the thing. It is the illusion of a shortcut. That's what it is. Self-harm is an illusion of a shortcut. I think I can get to the place I want to be, which is having less pain, by doing that behavior. And while it does reduce the pain, it's not reducing it long-term. It's reducing it short-term. And I do want it to be reduced short-term. But like my bigger goal is that it reduces long-term. And that shortcut actually is taking me further away from that long-term reduction of hurt, of pain. 
So what's funny is in that moment, I was just kind of processing thoughts that I was having. And then I went on to do that wise mind exercise at the end of the recording and judged myself for not being effective at that. So (laughs) I buried the lead. I could have ended the recording after my initial realization and played it off as, see, this is totally what I meant to do all along. This is completely planned. But that would have been inauthentic. What's authentic is that I didn't even notice that I had that realization, that self-destruction was a shortcut. I didn't notice that until much later. I found my way there eventually. So that was reassuring and also kind of drives home the idea that like none of this stuff is linear. There are days where I'm 20 steps forward, no steps back. There are days where I'm three steps forward, 19 steps back. There are days when I'm one step forward, one step back. Like there's a whole spectrum of possibility in terms of healing and growing. And yeah, this wasn't linear. I kind of peaked earlier on in the episode. If I'm relating to having these sorts of realizations as peaking, which it may not be. I just, I learned something more about myself earlier on in the episode. And then when I went in to learn even more about myself, I was not effective. How's that for a non-judgmental way of saying it? Oh, but yes, my self-destruction is absolutely a way for me to avoid pain in the present moment. And as I said in the recording, because I used that shortcut so often, I trained my brain that that, that self-destruction was the thing to do when I was in pain. And I didn't learn other skills. I didn't learn how to tolerate being in pain. I didn't learn how to be resilient. I didn't learn how to heal. I was slapping a Band-Aid on cancer and calling it good, which is not effective. At least it's not effective for my long-term goals. And what I'm not going to do here is judge myself for doing that, for in the past having behaviors that were self-destructive and in the present having the urges to do behaviors that are self-destructive. I'm not going to judge myself for self-harming or for having anonymous sex with strangers. I am not going to judge myself for having those urges now because, item one, judgments cause shame. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be sitting in shame. And the other reason why I'm not going to judge myself is that those behaviors made sense. They were caused. Given everything that came before, all of my beliefs and experiences and lack of skills, etc., I could not have done it any differently, which is radical acceptance right there, I guess. And if you're new to the podcast and want to check out Radical Acceptance, that's Distress Tolerance Handout 11 in the DBT manual. And a significant portion of my episodes involve radical acceptance. So there's... (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of material to choose from. Now, accepting that that's what I did, that those are the behaviors that I did, does not mean that I like that I did those things. It also doesn't mean that I want to do them again, or more, more specifically. In my wise mind, that's not how I want to live my life. Even if my emotion mind thinks it's a fucking fantastic idea. So when I'm actually present to and aware of my long-term goals, my values, I do not want to engage in self-destructive behaviors. And accepting that I did them 
doesn't change that I don't want to do them in the future. Judging myself for doing those things doesn't change that I did them. Like I can't change the past at all. It's done. And judging myself for doing those things also creates a lot of suffering for me. (laughs) Remember from all the episodes that I've done on radical acceptance, rejecting reality turns pain into suffering, which is distress tolerance handout 11 right there on radical acceptance. Put another way, suffering is pain without acceptance. So in the interest of not creating suffering for myself, I choose not to judge myself because judgment and acceptance are mutually exclusive. I cannot accept a thing if I'm judging it. And if I'm judging something, I'm not accepting it. So in the interest of not creating suffering for myself, I choose not to judge myself. I choose to accept that that's what I did. And why do I choose to accept that? Because it is what I did. (laughs) That is, in fact, what happened. Factually, that is what I did. And I also choose to accept that I still have those urges because I do (laughs) still have those urges. That is a fact. I still have those urges. And those behaviors and those urges are trying to do something for me. They're trying to have me feel less suffering. And my brain thinks a shortcut to feeling less suffering is to self-destruct. But you know what the actual shortcut to feeling less suffering is? Fucking radical goddamn acceptance. Fuck. I hate it when the answer is right fucking there. (laughs) But of course, I self-destructed because I did not have the skill of radical acceptance. Even if I'd known that that was the thing to do, I wouldn't have known how to do it. Now I know how to do it, even though I don't enjoy it. Um, And that means I have another option. That means now, or rather, that means in the future, it can go a different way because I have different skills that I can use in the future. Hmm. This is all very interesting. I fucking hate it when the answer ends up being radical acceptance. Because some part of me still thinks that radical acceptance means that I'm fine with it, I'm okay with it, everything's hunky-dory. And that is not what it is. That's a a messaging problem, I guess, or an assumption that I'm making that is not in line with reality. Radical acceptance is accepting what was so and what currently is so. And acknowledging that what happened, happened. And what is happening is is happening. That's it. I don't have to like it. I don't have to plan to do it in the future. I don't have to be okay with it happening in the future. It's merely acknowledging. And I don't say merely as a way to diminish it. It's still a fuck ton of work. And it goes counter to all of my wiring and all of the messaging that I think I've gotten. Um, Well, if you want to hear more about radical acceptance, I've got a shit ton of episodes about that just scrolling through my list of existing episodes will give you a whole smorgasbord of options. So check them out. I am going to go do literally anything else now. (laughs) So I'm going to do my standard ending, which is to end this super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky. 
performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.